Welcome to uh, Kitchen Sink. I'm Thomas Kilroy and uh, where are we up to now? This is uh, episode four. I have to say, and it was pointed out again by somebody on Twitter that I seem to give the uh, the weather uh, as it's happening, but I always think it's nice that uh, when you're listening to it, you have a sense of, of what's going on. And today, I have to say the weather is absolutely gorgeous here in Oxford. Um, I've just been out for a run and... Um, I was feeling really, really good and kept at it and somehow managed to cross the half marathon uh, mark. I, I, I don't know how, where that energy came from, but I, I managed to get there and I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little tender at the moment, but I'm sure I'll feel much better once, uh, once I've recovered by uh, this time tomorrow. So where are we at? Well, this week for me was a very momentous week. I have to say I'm very chuffed to bits to have become an uncle again with the arrival of Annabelle Florence Kilroy, who joined us on the 6th of August at about, uh, what time, about 10 to 11 in the morning, weighing nine pounds. Oh, my goodness. So congratulations to my brother Dermot and and uh, Nicola. And they'll be arriving home with a little sister for Felicity and Rosa. So I think it's fabulous news in the, in the, the Kilroy household. And I've just been off the phone to uh, my, my uh, business partner in Nepal, Robert, uh, the call didn't go according to plan. He could hardly hear me, so we arranged that we'd uh, we'd make a call uh, maybe tomorrow morning. I'll try again. But he sent me an email during the week, and, and um, again, um, a friend of mine called Sush, Sushaban, uh, he sent a tweet to say it would be nice to hear some news from Nepal uh, on, on my show. And I said, well, let's see what we can do. And to be fair, I, I guess there would be uh, a little bit of an audience there in Nepal that would be interested in what I have to say. Or maybe not. Maybe they're ju- they're just tuning in to improve improve their English. For all I know, uh, the truth is, if you are listening in Nepal, thank you very much, Dan Debat. I very much appreciate it. And uh, so, as I said, uh, what news have we of Nepal? Well, um, Robert did send me a little email during the week, and he said that um, here's the news because obviously we had a massive earthquake. Uh, a about three and a half months ago now, and uh, devastated um, you know, hundreds of thousands of homes. About 8,000 people were killed, which was, which was really, really bad. And I have to say, at the time, it was a Saturday morning in the UK um, when, when we got word, um, straight away trying to get through to friends and family, and we heard from our teams in Kilroy's and K2 that all staff and customers managed to get out safely from the buildings and uh, that we were very fortunate there was no casualties or, or deaths r- r- reported from that side of things. Um, however, uh, you know, now the rebuild has started and businesses are really, really struggling because as a result of an earthquake, many people think twice and, and even three times about you know, going to Nepal, especially if you can't get travel insurance, for example. Um, so I'm keen to pick up with Robert and find out exactly what's going on. But he did send me in an email to say that uh, in his email said, I have paid June, July and August salary from my pocket and hopefully September will be back to normal. We at Kilroy's had to lay off 11 people for these three months as there is definitely not enough work for full staff, for full roster of staff. Hopefully they will all be back with us in September. K2, our steakhouse uh, just around the corner in Tamil, is also having tough times but with no layoffs. Now, that's the first time in our 16 years of, of running uh, Kilroy's of Kathmandu and K2 Steakhouse that we've ever had to lay people off or, or reduce reduce our um, 
um, you know, wrote of people, but, you know, very, very, very challenging times. And what I would say to you is there is an effort by by Nepal as a country and by um, tour operators to try and convince you that that Nepal is uh, getting back on its feet actually quite quickly um, and that a lot of the uh, tourist attractions um, you know and the and some of the trekking routes are are open uh, open for business and actually you know you might think well let's do something to raise raise funds for Nepal I can tell you there's no better way to raise funds for Nepal than to um, book a tour with a with a, a, a you know a, a recognized tour operator um, jump on a plane, go out, book a room and and visit Nepal. Uh, I, I can only urge you to do that. But anyway, I'm going to check in with Robert, find out some more and I'll come back to you. And uh, maybe maybe next week I'll tell you about the um, very often I'm asked what what brought you to Kathmandu, Nepal? And that's a little bit of a story in itself. So maybe maybe next week I might I might go through that. And let's see if I get through all that's on my agenda today, I might even have time at the end of this show. So let me see if we have a look at uh, how was last week. Last week we had some, I have to say, some really nice feedback on, um, you know, I, I highlighted the uh, Save the Food Tech A-Level, um, which is a campaign being run by, f- you know, teachers and so on. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a really sad state of affairs that, um, that something as pivotal to, to the development of our understanding of food in this country is just being dropped and, uh, and you know, the there isn't as much love uh, for the topic as as there should be. Um, within just uh, an hour of my podcast going live last week, uh, Mark Arnold on Twitter uh, just sent me a quick tweet to say, love your podcast, Thomas. Agree with your views on home economics, A-level debate. So thank you very much, Mark, for your for your uh, tweet. That's very, it warms the cockles of my heart when I get a little bit of a message back to say somebody has been listening and maybe has a viewpoint on what I've said. Um, Mark is a, a well-known um, advocate for the uh, British Institute of Facilities Managers, um, who, who I've met once or twice, and uh, I know he's a great supporter of all things uh, hospitality. So uh, it just goes to show you it has a very, very wide um, um, uh, impact. And, and interestingly, I was following the hashtag, you know, uh, Save the A-Level campaign, and obviously there's a huge concerted um uh shall we say campaign to try and get the jamies and the and the jimmy's farm type uh celebrities uh involved but the irony is that they're in doing that they're overlooking that so somebody you know mark arnold represents let's say uh or or is within a body known as the british institute of facility managers you've also got places like the food service consultants the fcsi you've got the institute of hospitality you've got uh who, who have lots and lots of consultants and of course all of these celebrity chefs have investors behind them they have uh, business partners behind them they have suppliers behind them that's where the money is. That's where the influence is. So um, I'm saying all of this in the hope that one or two teachers might listen to that and just widen their, their view uh, that uh, many of those MPs that you need to, to, to make the changes, they get a lot of their funding from some of the bigger organisations and those are represented and, have, and want to have a voice and want to be seen to be leading the community within organisations such as the ones I've just mentioned. So um, interesting, we always think of... Uh, 
the Jamies of this world as as the figurehead for 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 influence and change. But actually, sometimes it's not as clear cut as that. So that's just one way of looking at it. Um, if you go to the show notes of last week, I have I have lots and lots of information there on what you can do to support it. But I, I would. And again, I'm asking the uh, the British Hospitality Association and others uh, to maybe just a little retweet here and there because that carries a lot of weight. Um, there's a whole point of, of, of having um, a hospitality association and this is one very, very good uh, campaign that I think should be supported. Um, in terms of management tip, I had a little thing about uh, shared calendars. I know it's not very sexy, but you know what? It's it's absolutely uh, really saved and a lot of email for me uh, in my, my day-to-day job. And uh, so maybe at the, late, at the end of this, uh, I'm going to just talk about the 15-minute meeting. Uh, because I think uh, anyone who's going away on holiday, anyone who's currently on holiday and may be listening to this. In fact, a friend of mine, Melvin Gold, one of the uh, the UK's leading, if not the foremost, hotel consultants, um, just put out a tweet to say, I may have to take Thomas Kilroy on holiday with me because he uh, discovered that I had a podcast. He downloaded them and he's off on his holidays right now and he might be might be listening to me uh, as he as he lays there next to the next to the pool. So enjoy your trip, Melvin. But it's um, the 15 minute meeting when you get back and you want to kind of reset things. Uh, this could be the little tip for you. So I'm going to just talk about that. So let's see what's been happening in the world of hospitality uh, over the last few few days, a couple of weeks. Um, well, lots going on in terms of, uh, I suppose the best way to put it is the good, the bad and the ugly of high street brands. Um, lots of different little stories bubbling up here and there. Um, some are good, some not so good. Um, one story that I wanted to share last week, but I, I ran out of time, was that, um, you know, that... Uh, casual dining chains have topped a satisfaction poll. Um, and I think what's interesting is that uh, if I just look at some of the figures, which were qu- uh, quite amazing, while independent restaurants have seen a 1.4 billion fall in visitors since 2009, chains have gained a 900 million visitors uh, was claimed by the people who've done that. I've shared the link in my show notes, um, but I think that that's a, that's a really, really frightening statistic for anyone who's thinking of going into business, um, that these chains are, are you know, becoming forces to reckon with, and they're, they're becoming a little bit more savvy with, with what they, they offer. Um, mind you, on, on the other hand, I've, I've highlighted for my, for my, my own reference here um, one line that stuck out for me if you provide great food but your service does not follow and your outlet is not clean you are likely to lose customers that's pretty obvious if you're not uh, if you're not running uh, an operation where the uh, the attention to service is not in fact i would go one better i would say that if you went to a restaurant and you had a you know a, a mediocre meal in terms of the food itself you could cook something better at home but if the waiter or waitress or whoever was serving you gave you an, an amazing experience um, and you, you you know you looked around in the environment and the atmosphere was quite good it was reasonably priced I think you'd go back. You know, why not? You'd give it the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the chef had an off night. But if you had an amazing, amazing meal, I mean, I don't care who it is, Simon Rogan in the kitchen knocking out the best food in the world. Um, you know, same scenario, same restaurant that I've just, you know, whatever you pictured in your head on my first scenario, uh, just picture amazing food. But imagine you got this really surly kind of service. They didn't smile. They, you know, they, they look down their nose at you. Um, you look around and you kind of think I waited too long for, for everything and it's not very clean. 
it doesn't matter how good the food is, you ain't going back. That's my feeling. So I always felt that um, if you really work on the service in a restaurant, uh, that will that will cover up for a lot of mistakes that maybe or short shortcomings from the chef. Um, if you can get a great chef and a great service out the front, and you pay attention to some of the details, such as uh, you know making sure making sure you don't run out of toilet roll in the loo, those little things make a big difference. Then. Um, you've you've got a great restaurant and more and more uh, chains are, are are doing that and and they're winning hand over fist as a result so i mentioned the good the bad and the ugly so where are we with the bad well funny enough uh, it looks like that the chains the high street um restaurants are not you know on the christmas card list for many of their staff because it seems that these restaurants are charging staff for uh, administration costs, for, for handling the tips that they receive on cards. So if you as a customer pay your bill by credit card, um, there is usually something like a 12, 12.5% uh, discretionary service charge added onto your bill, and you pay that by card. Um, more often than not, not everyone, but more often than not, and there's there's a little article that's been highlighted, um, the the restaurant chain will take a percentage of that from the staff to cover the administration costs. And as a result, um, Unite is planning a series of demonstrations outside Pizza Express restaurants in the coming weeks to protest the company's policy. And this, I'm using the words here in this article, of skimming 8% from tips paid to staff by credit cards. 8%, which uh, does seem quite high. Um, now, I have to say it's a very emotive topic, uh, the whole subject around uh, tips. Um, and obviously, I, I don't know if, if whatever I've said here is correct or incorrect or you have a different view on the matter. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, please, please do share your thoughts, uh, perhaps in the comments section uh, below this podcast uh, on uh, thomaskilroy.com. Or you'll find me over on Twitter um, at MyKitchenSync, and that's S-Y-N-C, as in synchronize. Um, so uh, just thinking about um, tips, what we tend to do when we go to a restaurant is... Um, when a bill comes, um, we'll often ask the the person who is serving us to take to remove the discretionary charge from the bill. And usually there's a little look of horror on the face because they believe that their service wasn't up to standard. Actually, usually it very often is. Um, but what we do then is we pay it in cash on the side and then it's up to them whether whatever the policy in the restaurant is whether that then goes into a, a trunk to be shared out in cash among the staff or whether that goes in that service pocket that's entirely up to the restaurant but at least we know that um, eight percent ten percent five percent or maybe nothing in certain circumstances um, w would be going to the you know i've heard of stories in the past where any credit card tips were kept and that usually would pay, paid for mending curtains I've actually heard that from that's going back many many years ago. I'm not suggesting that happens right now with some of the bigger companies on the on the market, but you know, you might get a smaller operation where they say, well, you know what? Uh, there's a lot of breakages by the staff. We'll use uh, the tips to to pay for that and and you know, um because they've been doing it and getting away with that kind of questionable activity for years. It's it's not been questioned by the staff, um, but in this case, the the staff are going out on on strike. Um, I must highlight that chains including Chiquito, uh, Garfunkel's, and TGI Friday have dropped the trunk charges, according to Unite. So that's very important that there are two or three, and I think that's going to become a, a differentiator between um, different restaurants. And and scrolling down here and looking at different. Um, 
yeah, they've literally got strata, 10%, uh, Wagamama, none. So, so Wagamama do not take any, any uh, uh, fees from their staff. It says all of the tips and gratuities, whether cash, check or credit card left by customers, go to the staff and are shared on a basis agreed by the staff, but not necessarily to the waiter of your table. So there's that's my point. Each restaurant, obviously, each company has their own policy, uh, but that seems fair. Uh, giraffe, uh, which is now owned by Tesco's, uh, 10%, ZZ 8%, Carluccio's none. So it's worth highlighting the ones that don't do it as well. Uh, would you make a, a choice of where you're going to eat based on uh, how they treat their staff tips? Uh, be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I have a funny feeling we're going to hear much more on the on the subject. I do know from our own experience, we had a little pub uh, in Bedfordshire called the Five Bells and um, in the very early days, my, my dad, who was who was one of the investing partners, you know, and bless his cotton socks, he he, he wanted to make sure we had a very fair and equitable um, tip system. So we set up a trunk system. Uh, my wife uh, was the trunk master. Uh, she didn't want to do that, but we just felt that at the end of the day, she was she was the one front running the front of house and was very much in touch with what each person had done in terms of serving the table. Um all tips, everything that came in went into the trunk. And then what we would do, we did have a small percentage of that which went to the kitchen um, as a team rather than individually. So we, we maybe took 10 percent of, of the of the tips which came in and that went to the kitchen as a whole and it was up to them then we found that after two months or three months there was enough in the kitty for, for a little uh, you know night out in one of the local pubs or into town for example um, but the biggest problem that we faced was because we had this trunk system we then had our accountant um, administering the uh, trunk um, paperwork you know to do so that each person got a a payslip um, and and on that payslip outlined how much they received in their trunk and how much was paid as as national insurance etc. Now I have to tell you yes absolutely that cost us every single week uh, twenty pounds was paid to our accountant um, as a result of that and we we soaked that cost up we never we never took that out of the out of the the trunk. Um, but I have to tell you, uh, if if today I was standing here and I owned 15 pubs, um, you know, I don't believe for one minute that uh, my costs would have gone up in running and administering that. I think my costs by, in terms of scale would have gone down. Uh, maybe it might have gone up to 40 or 50 pounds from the accountant, uh, but over 15 pubs per pub, it would go down. So therefore... I think any argument about the increase in administration costs or the you know to cover administration I think it's a bit of a misnomer and there's another very interesting um point that was raised in this uh, in another article um and it was around okay so so here we go so there's a, a couple of phrases here so consider a couple who go for dinner in a in a well-known high street brand uh, restaurant and end up with a bill for 60 pounds they add a six pound tip for the service uh, so that the restaurant adds a six pound tip for the service um, and pay the full 66 by card is their waiter expected to cover the card processing fee of around two percent for the entire 66 pounds which would be the equivalent uh, that's one pound 32 fee or just the six pounds tip which would be a 13p uh, fee if it is the former then employers may have found another loophole to save money at the expense of staff so again there's lots and lots of little uh, loopholes and you know accountancy kind of 
wiggling, shall we say, going on. Um, and as a result, um, staff are unhappy about it. And I think, to be fair, a lot of a lot of um, customers are unaware that this is such a major issue. So I think they'll be they'll be quite surprised to hear that staff are, are upset about it. So let me know your thoughts. Uh, let's see how this how this plays out over the next next few weeks. So coming back to my point about the good, the bad and the ugly, I guess the ugly then comes comes to uh, a very understated headline that I read reported in Brand Republic this week. So this headline in Brand Republic said the living wage could leave retailers profits vulnerable and result in fewer staff. We're back to the living wage, which um, um, some major players have said is going to cost their business very dearly and others have said suck it up wear your big boy pants and get on with it it's the cost of doing business uh you know they're taking something such as um the living wage and using that as uh laying out a little lower expectation of pr- future profits and i think that's slightly unfair i mean let's face it uh if retailers are to say that it's resulting in fewer staff on the floor let's let's stand back and think about that for a minute i think uh when i visit some of the big the big retailers um you know and i'm looking at you tesco's and sainsbury's and others um you should be paying me because i'm checking out my own um groceries <laughs> this whole self-checkout thing is where you've managed to um delegate uh responsibilities and, and tasks away from employees and put them onto your customers so i go in and i pick up my shopping basket and i go around and i pick up some bits and pieces and i walk over and i find myself scanning my own um products putting them into my own bag um, scanning my card collecting my points uh paying with my card taking my receipt um, and, and making my way out the door. Uh, meanwhile, they haven't had to pay um, whatever the, the going rate is, minimum wage, to somebody who could have had a job doing that. Now, I, I have no problem with that. I, you know, that's that's the cost of you know. If if that means that they have more people to uh, to 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 stock the shelves, well and good. But don't say it, that this living wage uh, argument is going to result in fewer fewer staff on the thing because you've been doing that for years anyway. I would say. Uh, and another point, of course, is that uh, just recently my wife, finally, I got her to sign up to um, online ordering and we've started to take some deliveries just to see what that looks like because we often find that uh, some of those heavier items, you know, if you want some potatoes and, I don't know, things like uh, washing up powders and all those, they're, they're quite heavy to carry from the local shop. So why not Why not put in the order online and get it delivered? Well, again, uh, does that result in fewer people on the shop floor? You betcha. Uh, so I think that the, it's a it's a little bit of a red herring on the behalf of the uh, the big players to blame it on um, on on the living wage in the future. I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, Sainsbury's have just recently reported a loss, um, so they are having some kind of uh, smaller. Um, issues to deal with there and let and uh, i don't know if you're if you're aware but tesco have the accountancy equivalent of the horsemeat scandal uh where the um the fraud office have come in and they're looking at their books um various um senior senior um um directors and managers have been um 
sacked as a result of very, very questionable um, accountancy practices. Um, so all of that has to come out in the wash. And I think what they're doing is they're trying to create a scenario where they can, they can set up some excuses and bank them for the future. So when they're not hitting those quarterly um, expectations, they can then come back and, and revisit this argument that they've set out. Um, on the other on the other side of the coin, uh, you know, let's turn that around. Maybe all of those potential employees that couldn't get a job in those struggling um, retailers uh, could just go down the street and, and apply at Aldi because Aldi have just announced that they are planning to roll out 130 new stores and create 8,000 new jobs within the retail sector. So it looks to me like... Uh, you know, they're creating a very positive headline with that story, um, as opposed to creating a very negative headline with um, blaming the living wage for possible uh, vulnerability in future uh, profits. Another company that has announced uh, uh, an amazing uh, quarter is uh, Starbucks, um, a jump in 22 percent for the quarter ending June 28th. And I have to say what's interesting about that um, is firstly, I mean, the, the, the numbers are you know, huge. Uh, revenue for the quarter jumped 17.5% to $4.9 billion. So that's up from $4.2 billion in the same period a year ago. But profits grew even more to $626 million, or $0.41 cents a share, a 22% increase from $512 million um, last year. I mean, that is absolutely unbelievable. Um, let me have a look here. So what does it say? Da, da, da. In the conference call, Mr. Schultz said that Starbucks did not expect to maintain these kinds of levels of high single-digit comp numbers that we did today. Um, you know, I think that's fair enough. Uh, everyone has a has a good quarter, a bad quarter. But one of the reasons uh, that's been cited, and this this for me is the is the interesting point about this this story, is that um, there's a quote: "These new capabilities, like mobile order and pay, enable us to bring in new customers to Starbucks." adding that the service will be available in all company-owned United States stores by the holidays. So effectively what's happening is that they are, you know, really doubling down on their use of technology. And I have to say Starbucks is way ahead of the posse when it comes to this. I mean, if you if you have a smartphone, if you have an iPhone, for example, um, and you download their app, which I've done a, a couple of months ago, um, you know, you're invited then to preload the app. So you put put some money in there, um, usually 10, 20 pounds at a time. And when it goes below a certain amount, it automatically tops up from it from a card. So currently right now, as I sit here uh, with my I have to say, I'm drinking uh, a little cup of coffee myself and it's a, it's a Honduran single estate uh, made in a cafetiere. So, you know, it's all, all glamour here, Podcast Central. You know, they, they have currently 10, 11 pounds of my money sitting in their bank account. Uh, Starbucks have as a result of this app. And the minute I have a coffee, I'll go below that £10 threshold and it'll automatically add £20 more in just so that I'm I'm sure that I've got enough for when I when I go there and I want to treat myself. Um, so straight away, they are already getting my money way in advance of giving me the product. The second thing I find very interesting about the app is that um, once you set up your two or three favourite stores or outlets, um, for example, I've set one up in the high street in, in Oxford just out of out of curiosity. As soon as I'm within 100 metres or thereabouts of that store, 
my phone lights up to say you are close to your favorite Starbucks. Now, there's three or four other places nearby. For example, around the corner is uh, Zappi's Bike Cafe, which was listed as uh, one of the top 10 bike cafes in the country by one of the broadsheets there a few months ago. Um, however, uh, because it's flashed up on my phone, Starbucks, you know, draws it draws me into that store. Um, so I, I think it's very, 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 very savvy. And I do know that... Um, my my very good friend, a guy I worked with uh, at the Ritz Hotel, we were both commie patissiers, my goodness, 20 years ago, a guy called uh, uh, Stuart Middleton, and he is doing very well for himself um, at Starbucks. And he made a presentation, and Howard Schultz was uh, you know, one of the people in the, the audience um, sitting in the front row. And he, he did tell me that they're working on some very exciting uh, plans for developing that app. Um, but I have to say, I can see um, why they are way ahead of the posse in terms of that. So, and it's, it's, it seems to be working. On the other side of the coin, another major world globally recognized brand is McDonald's. And they have announced that they're uh, going back to basics. Um, they are going to trial table service in the UK as part of a major revamp. Um, And I think that's, again, uh, you know, as a person who is an advocate for hospitality, I think it's fantastic that that sometimes the most old-fashioned approach can be the most innovative approach. And I think uh, in this case, um, sure, why not uh, trial it, see if it makes a difference. From the point of view, we just mentioned about Starbucks with tech. And I think what's interesting here is that there is, again, a tech angle to this, uh, where they say customers will be able to order from digital kiosks or staff with tablet computers uh, with the food then delivered to the table. The initiative is targeted. So this is the second point. The initiative is targeted at young families and customers who do not want to wait at the traditional McDonald's counter. So again, uh, very interesting uh, sort of look at their service offering. Let's see how they get on. So what what else has been happening then? Um, well, in terms of restaurants, we haven't been out to anything of note just uh, just recently. But I'll tell you something that I am looking forward to. And uh, it's another little pop-up. But it came to my attention uh, because it was uh, retweeted by Ox- Oxford Brooks, uh, the Bacchus Society. And um, I'm a mentor to um, some, some uh, undergraduates there at Oxford Brooks. And I have to say, what a fantastic, I mean, amazing bunch of young people that they are uh, so professional so talented and 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 really going places so obviously when i read a, a little thing that said come and check out um you know brooks um school of hospitality management alumnus jack Cohn has set up this summer um and what it is is that uh, jack is um the general manager at uh, a restaurant called Kensington Place. And to be fair, himself and Tim Pearson have set up something really exciting, a little pop-up just running for the month of um, August at uh, Kensington Place called the Notting Gill Chippy. So it's the Notting Gill, G-I-L-L, Chippy. Um, and I have to say, it looks looks the business. I mean, here we are in the middle of summer. Who doesn't like 
fish and chips, uh, for example. And I have to say, some of the ideas that they've got, it's very, very simple, very straightforward, fish, chips, you know, a bit of tartar sauce. But they've also got, uh, interestingly, curry spiced um, batter version as well. And you can have that with uh, uh, some some uh, lentil dal and mango chutney, fish finger butty with spicy ketchup, um, bitter and twisted scampi. So again, very, very interesting sounding, uh, delicious sounding, in fact. Um, and then they've got some poppy and rice sourdough with seaweed butter, uh, mushy peas, the curried lentil and dal that I mentioned, and also some really nice baby pickles, um, you know, baby onion, cornish ons, that, that type of thing, quail eggs. So, so yeah, uh, a very, very nice uh, upmarket twist, shall we say, on the traditional fish and chips. So I think that's worth checking out. I think anyone who is an alumnus of uh, Brooks University deserves a little shout out. So uh, well done to you guys. Looking forward to, to getting in and, and, and seeing what it's like. So that's pretty much it in terms of uh, restaurants this week. If you hear of anything that's happening, uh, please let us know. Uh, just share again whatever's happening on either the comment section of thomaskilroy.com or why not send me a little tweet over on My Kitchen Sink um, over on Twitter. On my show notes this week, I'm going to share with you uh, a link to a story. Um, and, and actually, it's more than the story. It's the photographs that this story features. And here I am on a, on a podcast over the airways sharing with you. So, so because they're photographs, you have to click on the link and you have to look at these photographs. Um, they're photo photos of various food dishes flying through the air, which sounds a bit kind of, I'm not sure what that means. But uh, let me let me just explain. So um, let me see. London-based commercial still life photographer. His name is Peter Grigorczyk. I hope I got that pronunciation, uh, Peter. Um, likes to play with food and gravity. One concept he has focused on for a number of recent projects is the idea of showing various food dishes flying through the air as they come together on a plate or in a bowl. And I have to tell you, they are so, so compelling. They are stunning and what i find stunning about them is that firstly how did he do it i mean it's you know even if you explain to me how he did it i still can't get how he did it um and secondly they are so amazingly vibrant and colorful uh just just incredible so and i'm scrolling down and look at them here and i can see uh meatballs for example uh and rice um all falling into the pan um, so, so Peter says that after careful planning out what a photograph will look like, about 60% of it is captured with various techniques in his studio, while the remaining 40% is achieved through digital manipulation in post-production, which is fair enough. I mean, if, if you see these photographs, they are impossible to do just in a, in a, in a single photograph. They're, they're obviously a composite. Um, but again, I'm looking at these eggs flying through the air. There's a hamburger, uh, coming together. It, just amazing i'm going to put the link to the story on there because the story nicely brings together all of the uh, all of the photos and i'll put the link of his website because it is a, it's a beautiful website he's done a lot of work some photographs you might even recognize from from many well-known uh, advertising campaigns he does say that there's many a food and drink spill has resulted from his photo shoots but it's a small price to pay for the distinctive uh, photos that result and i have to agree thank you so much your art is um, absolutely a joy a joy to behold um so i had to share that with you um now in terms of uh, i talked a few minutes ago about uh, what would our management tip for this week be and you know um one compelling little uh, tip that really works um 
is the 15-minute meeting. Now, for this uh, to work, you do need a little discipline, and the first couple of times you do it, people might look at you a little bit funny, but I can promise you, I know um, uh, a former colleague of mine who, who does this, and she does this as part of her daily briefing with her team, um, and she said it's hugely effective because it just keeps everyone on point and it doesn't allow meetings to overrun. So the 15-minute meeting. Firstly, you have to have the meeting standing up. You cannot have the meeting sitting down. The minute you sit down, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to overrun. Secondly, you need a stopwatch or you need to open up your, your smartphone and, and, and open the timer on it. And basically what you do is you have three sets of five minutes each. So the first five minutes is outlining what is the problem that you need solving. So you, you have five minutes to make a presentation or to explain what it is that the meeting is about. The second five minutes is for everyone to then... Um, throw some ideas around the table um, and brainstorm, um, if, that's a, if that's a proper word to use, some ideas, uh, thoughts, reactions, etc., etc. And then, again, the alarm will go off. You've just reset it for the final five minutes. The final five minutes then is to say, what is the outcome of the meeting? What is the next steps, the actions that you would take from that meeting? So there you go, the 15-minute meeting, uh, something, to, something to, to think about for when you get back to the office as a way of reclaiming some of that diary time. So there we go. That's pretty much a wrap for uh, episode four. Uh, this has been Kitchen Sink. I'm Thomas Kilroy. Until the next time, whatever you do, make it productive and fulfilling. Thank you for listening.